We love what we do. Welcome to Clinical Pearls. Well, I'm sure you've been there. You're watching the fetal strip in labor and delivery, and the fetal heart rate is between 160 to 180 or between 180 to 200. And there's no other sources that are overtly obvious causing the issue. Well, what do you do? How long do you watch it? The case of isolated fetal tachycardia. Is it a problem? In this session, we'll tackle that dilemma. First, let's start by recalling the intrapartum fetal heart rate interpretation system adopted by ACOG, which is the three-tier system. A Category 1 pattern is defined as a fetal baseline heart rate of 110 to 160 beats per minute. There must also be moderate baseline variability with an amplitude between 6 and 25 beats per minute. There can be no late or variable decelerations. Early decelerations may be present or absent, and accelerations may be present or absent. Category 1 patterns are considered normal because studies have demonstrated that these findings are associated with the absence of fetal metabolic acidemia at the time of observation. Fetal tachycardia, however, falls into fetal heart rate classification category 2. Fetal tachycardia is described as an increase in the baseline fetal heart rate above 160 beats per minute for longer than 10 minutes. Mild fetal tachycardia is defined as 161 to 180 beats per minute and severe tachycardia is defined as being greater than 180 beats per minute for at least 3 minutes. Fetal tachycardia causes can include maternal fever dehydration or anxiety, maternal ketosis, medications like anticholinergic meds, sympathomimetic medications like terbutaline, fetal drug ingestion like amphetamines, fetal movement having a preterm fetus, maternal thyrotoxicosis, maternal anemia, and of course maternal abruption. Fetal tachycardia is considered significant, and again, that's any raise in the fetal heart rate above 160, in the presence of maternal fever as chorioamnionitis can be suspected. Fetal arrhythmia or congenital defect is also associated with fetal heart rate tracings greater than 200 beats per minute. So that's a clinical pearl. Fetal arrhythmias or congenital defects are also associated with fetal tachycardia that are in the very severe range, typically greater than 200 beats per minute. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast. 5 to 10% of fetuses with this level of tachycardia will have a congenital heart defect. Any anatomical abnormality may be present, although there is an increased incidence of Epstein's anomaly and other causes of atrial enlargement like atrioventricular canal, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, or intracardiac tumors may also be present. Baseline fetal heart rate tachycardia represents an increase in sympathetic and or a decrease in parasympathetic autonomic nervous system tone on the SA node of the fetal heart. Different diagnoses include sinus tachycardia, supraventricular tachycardia or SVTs, or ventricular fetal tachycardia. Sinus tachycardia is characterized by atrial rates of 160 to 200 beats per minute. There is a one-to-one arterioventricular conduction. 
There's also normal duration of the AV interval and there's at least some heart rate variability. Short bursts of sinus tachycardia, typically up to 200 beats per minute, associated with fetal movement can be quite normal, especially in late pregnancy, and these do not require cardiac evaluation. Once again, short bursts that are typically associated with fetal movement and that can occur up to 200 beats per minute, especially in late pregnancy, can be considered normal if they're isolated and of short duration. Prolonged sinus tachycardia requires maternal and fetal evaluation as it can be a marker of early fetal hypoxia, maternal drug ingestion, thyroid abnormalities, pain, and as we previously discussed, chorioamnionitis or fever. Now, let's get into the antepartum aspects of fetal tachycardia. Now, I know that our podcast topic is about intrapartum causes, but let's cover antepartum to knock that out of the way and make the distinction that hearing fetal tachycardia at a prenatal visit at, say, 30 or 32 weeks is different management than finding isolated fetal tachycardia intrapartum. Regarding antepartum detection, SVT, or supraventricular tachycardia, is the most common fetal tachycardia type. This accounts for up to 90% of cases, so that's a clinical pearl. SVT is the most common type of tachycardia found antepartum, accounting for 9 out of 10 cases. Now, it is characterized by a regular rate that's typically between 220 up to 260 beats per minute, but rarely, and again, that's rarely, can be as high as 300 beats per minute, and obviously, that's a pretty severe situation. SVT can be sustained for hours or days, but it more commonly is found as an intermittent phenomenon. Early fetal echocardiographic signs of hemodynamic compromise include biatrial enlargement and atrioventricular valve regurgitation. Later findings include cardiomegaly and decreased systolic function, ultimately resulting in non-immune hydrops fatalis. The mortality rate of hydropic fetuses with SVT is over 50%, so this is a very high-risk situation. This is far higher than cases that have SVT without significant hydropes. Individual series report that maternal therapy does result in successful cardioversion in anywhere from 60 to 95% of cases within 48 hours to one week of initiating maternal therapy. Management of SVT should be individualized to take into account the specific maternal and fetal factors of each case. These decisions should be made with input from both the obstetrical and fetal cardiac providers. Now, for fetal cardiac providers, we're talking about a team necessary that can include a pediatric cardiologist, maternal fetal medicine specialist, and if available, a pediatric electrophysiologist. Well, now that we've kind of put away or put aside the antepartum identification, let's get back to our main focus here, which is antepartum management of fetal tachycardia. Fetal tachycardia intrapartum is considered complicated in the presence of decelerations or maternal fever. These two issues may justify the decision for delivering the child in view of possible fetal distress or suspected chorioamnionitis, respectfully. 
However, in clinical daily practice, management of mid to moderate uncomplicated tachycardia can be challenging because physicians don't have clear guidance for intervention in cases of uncomplicated fetal tachycardia. Remember, that's in the absence of maternal pyrexia or without D-cells where tachycardia has not resolved with conservative measures like left lateral tilt maternal hydration, or when pain control has been adequately addressed. Intrapartum, in cases of fetal heart rate tachycardia, scalp stimulation of the child should be performed to provoke a fetal heart rate acceleration. This is a good sign that the fetus is not acidotic. Delivery is indicated if acidemia or placental abruption is suspected. Tachycardia due to chorioamnionitis is generally not an indication for delivery unless decelerations or category 3 pattern is present or if the patient is remote from delivery and the tachycardia does not resolve with maternal hydration, antibiotic therapy, or antipyretic medication. Still, the dilemma which clinicians may face intrapartum is how long is conservative management safe in the absence of maternal pyrexia or decelerations? Should conservative management with watchful waiting be limited to 30 to 45 minutes, 45 to 90 minutes, or more than 90 minutes? Well, here's where other fetal heart rate tracing markers like fetal D-cells or variability may aid in decision-making. Published evidence has shown that fetal tachycardia with reduced variability in cases of intrapartum hypoxia is usually preceded by decelerations. So let's take a look at that timeline again. There's fetal tachycardia, then decelerations, eventually leading to reduced variability. However, complicating this picture is the fact that fetal tachycardia above 180 beats per minute has been linked to decreased variability in and of itself simply due to the elevation in fetal heart rate. So to err on the side of caution in cases of isolated fetal tachycardia, remember, that's cases not related to maternal fever and without associated decelerations, most would choose to expedite delivery due to persistent fetal class 2 heart rate tracing. Authorities do not agree on whether universal umbilical arterial cord gases should be sent in all cases of isolated fetal tachycardia. Some advocate only sending umbilical arterial cord gases in cases of non-vigorous neonates or low APGAR scores, while others suggest routine lab reporting. Also, it's considered reasonable to send the placenta pathology to document cases of histological or subacute chorioamnionitis, and of course, the pediatric team should be made aware of the fetal heart rate tachycardia for appropriate cardiac assessment. All right, Clinical Pearls family, that wraps up our quick review of the diagnosis and management of intrapartum tachycardia. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.